Francis Wimet, by the way, that last guy talking, just a little, his name is Harry Varden, great champion of the, of the uh, teens and 20s. Uh, they still have a trophy today in the PGA tournament named after the, that's called the Varden Trophy. It's for the best scoring average of a pro. Uh, Tiger Woods has won it, I think, seven out of the nine years or something. So he was uh, quite, the, quite, the, quite the golfer himself. Francis Wimetto was born here in America, born in Massachusetts, Brookline, 1893. He was raised in a poor home that happened to be across from the 17th fairway of the Brookline of the... Uh, it's Brooklyn. It's, the country, it's called the, the Country Club at Brookline, near, near Boston. Actually, it was the last place America won the Ryder Cup, but that's neither here nor there. Um, his father, was, uh, his father, Francis Wilmette's father, was a poor French-Canadian immigrant who never supported his son doing what he did in terms of playing golf because it was a sport for the wealthy. It wasn't a sport for, for commoners, which at that time in our country, and, and I don't know that we would say that today, but to say there aren't class struggles in 2007, I think probably would be a bit naive. Um, let me tell you a little bit about Francis. So Francis um, lived across from, from the country club at Brookline. He, would, he and his brothers, I'm going to quote some from some one of his biographies, uh, he collected lost balls in the woods and weeds around the course. Uh, the first golf club he owned was one that his older brother's got for him in exchange for a whole bunch of golf balls. Uh, the brothers practiced on a course that they mowed, uh, quote-unquote, a course that they mowed in the uh, overgrown cow pasture behind their house. When he was nine, Francis became a caddy at the country club when he was nine. Um, it gave him the opportunity to watch some of the best golfers up close, to memorize every inch of that golf course, which good caddies do. And uh, before going off to school, get this, before going off to school early in the morning, he would sneak out onto the golf course in bare feet so as not to leave any marks on the green, and he'd practice. Just practice as a, as a, as a school kid, just practice playing golf. That was his passion. That's what he loved. Uh, he would also, because he was a caddy, whenever it would just storm and, and none of the members would play, he would go out and play. When just a downpour, just so he could play. Just a little... Trivia, what kind of weather do you think they had for the 1913 U.S. Open at Brookline? Rainy and windy, and it just ate up the pros. And this little 20-year-old amateur was just, you know, lighting it up. Pretty amazing stuff. Um, he did win the 1913 U.S. Open, with the one you, they were just talking about at the country club at Brookline. He was the first amateur to win the Open uh, in modern history. He was the first amateur. To, um, he was the first American. He, was the, he, was, he won against unbelievable odds. He did it with a 10-year-old caddy. That's the only caddy he could find, Eddie Lowry. And when you watch the movie, you, 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 if you get a chance, you need to, because Eddie Lowry, who was his 10-year-old caddy, ends up in real life being a highly successful businessman. And you catch a little bit of that when you, from the movie and so forth. But at the time, he was a 10-year-old caddy, and they tried to replace his 10-year-old caddy for the final round when he was... At first, they didn't care. And they tried to replace his 10-year-old caddy for the final round, and he said, that's my caddy. Stand with him. Um, he is considered the father of American golf. You need to understand that in 1913... Um, well, if you, the numbers we have are actually from 1900. They're not that much difference. There are 400 total golf courses in all of America. They're all private. 
It's, that's how it got there. I don't believe that this is necessarily the case now. I, I'm sure it's not, but but at that time, that's how it got the name is the golf or the, the sport uh, or the game of the wealthy because of that particular thing. Um, and you just, you just, there, there just weren't in 1900, there just were, were not any public courses. So that really didn't happen until after 1913 because of Francis Wumet, which is why he's called father of American golf. Um, more than all those accomplishments and some of those stories that we think about, about Francis and, and what he did and how he led the way, more than any of that, he wasn't supposed to be there, even in the words of his father, because we aren't the right class of people. That'd be awful. It's stereotyped. Being told you can't do something because of your family or because of who you are or because of this or because of that reason. Um, and whoever you are and, and whatever you do, there will always be plenty of people, and you know this, who want to put you in a box who want to put you into some kind of stereotype. In some cases, it might be good. But, but again, it deals with this whole title, what I'm dealing with others' expectations. That's a terrible thing to have sometimes. Sometimes. Here's what I want to do. I want to take you to a passage in the Scripture where we have somebody else. Um, a story, you could say, is sort of similar to Francis Wimet in 1913. Oh, this guy's name is David. He's not a king yet. He's a 17-year-old boy. Some of you probably, I mean, we've all, I, I think all of us have heard the, the phrase David and Goliath. I want to take you just, I'm not going to go through the whole story, but I want to just take you to show you one particular thing about this that relates to this, this theme of dealing with others' expectations. Because this is really important. And I don't care who you are, I don't care how old you are. I don't care where you are in life. I don't care how successful or, or not you might be. This relates to all of us. And, and that's one of the great things about sports. There's always stories that can just kind of be related to our lives wherever we are and whatever we do. But David, at this point, 17-year-old boy, his, his sons, or excuse me, his brothers, his siblings are all at, uh, at, at, in, in, at battle against the Philistines. He wants to go take them what we might call a little care package. He does so, and he sees this huge, somewhere around eight and a half, nine foot freak of a man, literally, come out and challenge all of the Israeli armies to, to battle, and, and he sees this for a few days, and finally he says, somebody needs to take this guy down. And, uh, of course, he is, he's got a, a special heart. He has no special abilities, except that he's a very, very, he's very good with a slingshot, Okay. Not the kind of slingshots that we have today, but this kind here. I've tried to do that, and that's you can hurt somebody doing that because I have no control where the thing's going to go when you start doing this thing. Um, when we were in Israel, some you know there were people selling everything in Israel, and 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 somebody tried to. This is this is like David's slingshot. And I said, show me how it works, and he was really good. I said, how good? Is it? How hard is that? So I started doing. You know, I started hitting cars and stuff, but. It's just, it's not that hard. Anyway, David, David had a special, special gift for that. And I want to just take you to this passage. And it's a little lengthy, but just hang in there with me. And, uh, because I want, you, I want to show you the whole story. But David persisted. 
He said, I'm, I'm going to do this. I've been taking care of my father's sheep. He said, when a lion or bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and take the lamb from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and club it to death. I've done this. I'm sorry for you PETA folks. Just hang in with me. I've done this to, I've, I've done this to both lions and bears. And I'll do, it, I'll do it to this pagan Philistine. Okay? Two, for he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord has saved me from the claws of the lion, and the bear will save me from this Philistine. Saul, that's the king, finally consented. All right, go ahead, he said, and may God be with you, basically. This is what's going on now. So he says, I, I want to, this is ridiculous. We're not going to be intimidated by this bully. Now watch what happens. This is especially important, and we're going to come back to this. So kind of, kind of mark this. Look in verse 38. Um, then Saul gave David his own armor a bronze helmet, and a coat of mail. What's a coat of mail? coat of mail is a term for like uh, inter, interlocked steel circles, more or less. It's like a coat of armor for an individual. They even used that term even throughout the Middle Ages, which, of course, is long before that. But uh, and that's, that's what he's talking about, just this, this whole armor, you know. And uh, so he, he gave him this coat of mail. And David, David put this is all Saul's armor, basically. David put it on, strapped the sword over it, and he took a step or two, to see what it was like, for he had never worn such things before. I can't go in these, he protested. I'm not used to them. I mean, you can almost get this mental picture in your mind of the 17-year-old kid putting on this somewhere around 45 or so year old man's armor, and he's kind of, you know, awkward, and he's like, I can't do this. Just hang on to that thought a moment, all right? Keep reading this. He says, verse, verse 40, I'm not, I'm not used to them, so he took them off again. Verse 40, he picked up the smooth stones from a, from a stream, and he put them in his shepherd's bag. Then armed only with his shepherd's staff and sling, he started to cross, he started to, cross to fight Goliath. I'm going to come back to that in a moment, but let's, uh, let's just keep going. You know the rest of the story. Goliath walked toward David with a shield bearer ahead of him, sneering in contempt at this ruddy-faced boy. Am I, am I a dog? He roared at David. That you come to me with a stick? And he cursed David by the names of his gods. Come over here, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and wild animals, Goliath yelled. David shouted, you come to me with sword. By the way, this is the original trash talking. Started right here, okay? <laughs> Started right here. Come on over here. I'm going to whoop your little white shiny hiney, kid, okay? Um, David shouted in reply, verse 45, you come to me with sword, spear, and javelin. I come to you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel with whom you've defied. Today the Lord will conquer you. I will kill you, cut off your head. Then I'll give you the primitive culture, okay? Give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and wild animals, and the whole world will know that there's a God in Israel, and everyone will know that the Lord does not need weapons to rescue His people. It's His battle, not ours. The Lord will give you to us. Goliath moved closer to attack. David quickly ran out to meet him, reaching into his shepherd's bag, taking out a stone. He hurled it from his sling and hit the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank in. Goliath stumbled, fell face downward in the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine giant with only a stone and a sling. And since he had no sword, he ran over, pulled Goliath's sword from its sheath, and David used it to kill the giant, cut off his head. And when the Israel, when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they turned and they ran. And the rest of the story is history, of course, because the Israelis won that battle. I want to go back to verse 38. 
Can we go back to that? I want you to look at that one more time and just think about that. Because that's the story and you see it all and you've probably heard it from time to time. But I want to go back to verse 38. Then Saul gave David his own armor, a bronze, so forth and so forth. And, 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 and verse 39, David put it on, strapped the sword over it, took a step or two to see what it was like. He had never seen, he had never worn such things before. I can't go in these, he protested. Let me ask you a question. Anybody ever ask you to wear somebody else's armor? Speaking in metaphors here. Anybody ever ask you to do stuff that you just, it's just not you. And they want to they want to put you in a stereotype. Maybe it's a bad stereotype. Maybe it's a good stereotype. But it's not your area of giftedness or your area of talents. David, as a 17-year-old young man, said, that's not me. He was smarter than me. It's taken me a lot of years to figure that out. And I still fight with it sometimes because other people have certain expectations. You say, I want to try to do that. Instead of pouring yourself into the areas where you're gifted. Now, this is an important issue because it's not just the church that tries to do this with pastors. It's businesses. It's be, and some, you know what? Sometimes you have to do that. I'm not saying you don't. Sometimes we all have to do things we're not particularly good at or that we don't like. Let's not make a lifetime of it. That's the point. And I think it's an important issue for us to understand. Yes, we need to get an understanding of, of who we are. We need to ask God and maybe a few people close by us to help us fine-tune that. Now, I've got to offer this word of caution. That doesn't mean, and please hear this, that doesn't mean that I treat this as an excuse to not grow, to not change, to not evolve, to not try new things. I can't use this as, oh, that's not me. That's Saul's armor. I'm not going to do that. that. That's not an excuse. This is more, don't use that. Use this as, look, I need to find where it is and what it is if I don't already know where I, where I find the most fulfillment, where I find my most effectiveness. And as much as I can, as much as I can, I need to pour myself into that. And I love that story from David because he's just like, I know you have this expectation. I'm supposed to go do this like, like Saul would, the king, or any other, any other soldier. But that's not me. I'm really good with the slingshot, though. Now, I've got to take you to one other passage in Scripture because I want to talk about that from a positive standpoint. I've been kind of negative, you know, but I, I, I purposely, because it's just, it just the world that we live in. The world that we live in is just so quick. Granted, maybe we have gotten ourselves a little more sophisticated to where we're not going to sit in a room as we saw earlier and say, well, that guy's a peasant or he's not a gentleman or a lady or whatever. Maybe we're a little more sophisticated than that in some places, maybe not. But we still do it in other ways. Try to, you know, plow, well, you know, they're this way or they're that way. Here's what I want you to see. And I, this, is, this, is, this is really good. This is really good stuff. I want to take you to the New Testament now. Because here's my point. We all, have a, we all have a niche, okay? Now, how we get there and how that works is going to be different ways for different ones of us, depending on our walk in life and jobs and, and careers and families and, and all the other kinds of things that we have. But we all have this niche, and, and this, is, this is what I want you to see. This comes from Romans chapter 12. Just follow along with me. This is really good. This is really good stuff. 
In this way, we are like the various parts of a human body. He makes this comparison or metaphor. This is the Apostle Paul. We're like like various parts of a human body. Each part gets its meaning from the body as a whole, not the other way around. The body we're talking about is Christ's body of chosen people. Each of us finds our meaning and our function as part of His body. He's talking about the church there. Okay? You need to understand that. Now, I think it can go wider than that. But he's talking about the church here. Now, watch what he says. But but as a chopped-off finger or cut-off toe, we wouldn't amount to much, would we? So... Since we find ourselves fashioned into all these excellently formed and marvelously functioning parts in Christ's body, let's just go ahead and be, watch, be what we were made to be without enviously or pridefully comparing ourselves with each other or trying to be something we aren't. There's always somebody there to compare you to some other business guy or some other mom or some other person here or there. There's always somebody there to do that. That's not helpful. You're who you are. And we're all, we all have a, a distinct function in, 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 in life. I just, where we best, where, we, where we're best. And God's made us that way. That's what's really cool about this. God made us that way. That's not, is that for the church? Yeah, sure. That's, for, that's not just the church. Don't limit it. A lot of people read this, well, that's just the church. No, it's life too. Now, he goes on, he gives some examples from, from quote-unquote church. If you preach, just preach God's message, nothing else. If you help, just help, don't take over. <laughs> I'm not that one. <laughs> if you teach, stick to teaching. If you give encouraging guidance, be careful you don't get bossy. Oh, can I put this in my refrigerator? Um, <laughs> if you're put in charge, don't manipulate. Wow. Getting serious, isn't he? If you're called to give aid to people in distress, keep your eyes open and be quick to respond. If you work with the disadvantaged, don't get yourself, don't, don't let yourself get irritated with them or depressed by them. Keep a smile on your face. Love, watch this, love from the center of who you are. Don't fake it. Run for dear life from evil. Hold on for dear life to good. Be good friends. <laughs> Be good friends who deeply, who love deeply, who practice, watch this, who love deeply, practice playing second fiddle. I like that. In other words, serving others. I don't have to lead the way all the time. I don't have to be, it doesn't have to be, all, you know, it doesn't have to always be about me. You know, one of the keys to any level of fulfillment or purpose. One of the keys to any level of that is that we are all very unique and created and endowed by God with certain abilities. We need to find, if you haven't, we need to find that niche. Sometimes it's frustrating, but the key, it's, it's a key. You say, well, I, I, does that mean I need to switch my position? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe you find it there, or maybe you find that in some, something else other than what you do for a living. I don't know. I mean, I can't answer that question for each individual. That's something you're going to have to explore on your own. But just to understand it's there. It's very biblical. It's part of who God created us to be. Don't, don't be concerned. Don't be worried about having to live up to others' expectations, because that'll drive you crazy. And you're going to have a pretty miserable life if you do that. 
Now, does that mean that there's not a desire to please people that you love? Of course. And there's nothing wrong with that to a degree. But when we quit being the person God created us to be, when we, to, to use my metaphor, when we start trying to wear Saul's armor, trust me on this because I've done it, we start trying to wear Saul's armor, that is just a good formula for frustration and emptiness and, and just like, I give up. Now, that's the point here. You want to grow. You want, you, you want to explore. You want to try new things. You want to evolve. It's not a bad word. You want to evolve. You want to do all those things. But at the same time, you need to understand who you are. You need to understand also not just who I am. You need to understand what God wants in me, in my character, and work toward that and live toward that. Psalm 139 puts it this way, and I'm just going to wrap it up with this. It's a prayer. I pray it all the time. I talk about it here a lot. If you've been here very many times, you've probably heard me say it. Investigate my life, O God. Find out everything about me. Cross-examine and test me. Get a clear, clear picture of what I'm about. See for yourself whether I've done anything wrong. Then guide me on the road to eternal life. Know who you are. Who God made you to be. And what God wants you to become. That's one of the wonderful things of having a relationship with God. It's not an easy thing, not a formula, but it's part of a process. Get started on that trail if you haven't already. Let's pray together. I'm going to get the band to come and sing a song. It'll be great. God, thank you so much for these, uh, these truths. And we do pray and ask that you would, each one of us, we're at different places in life. And for some of us, it may mean a major change. For some of us, it may mean just doing some things a little differently. For some of us, we're just kind of on the beginning of this journey and the, or just even thinking about this whole faith journey thing. Wherever we are, God, that whole spectrum, I just pray that you would bless us and you would help us as we try and seek to understand what that means to, to live authentically in, in, in life and in, in a relationship with our, with our Creator. And we thank you for that and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.